Okay, thank you very much. And I'm delighted to have been asked to, to talk about this subject because uh, I'm totally involved in it, but I don't actually get much of a chance to talk about the geopolitics of it. And um, I have a real interest in it from some time. I was going to talk about hydrogen and lithium, which are the two big things about decarbonisation. But right now it's all about oil and they're very linked. Uh, so I got involved in the geopolitics of oil in the early 70s, not long after I'd left UWA, uh, where Sue and James and others uh, attended about the same time as I. Um, and it, uh, it was a quite remarkable period, the first oil crisis that came in the 70s. But um, now we're into what I'm hopefully calling the last oil crisis. Um, and it has been a surge in prices. It's, it, it, there were tight global oil markets, which it came into. But as soon as people like the EU foreign policy chief said, it's not possible for us to continue to feed Vladimir Putin's war machine through our energy imports, it was suddenly... Uh, a geopolitical event happening about resources. And uh, my point is this really heightens the need for electro ve electric vehicles. Um, but I was in at Stanford University in 1973-4 when the first oil crisis happened. And it was quite remarkable to see the city fall apart. Uh, and that really affected me and pushed me towards thinking about cities and oil and transport issues in general. Um, there were uh, periods when you could almost never see a car on the streets of San Francisco um, and people holding up service stations and crazy things like that happening. And uh, it, it wasn't pleasant to see. Um, we did a course at Stanford at that time on energy to try and understand it. And this guy, M.K. Hubbard, came along to explain that oil goes through these um, peaking and, and declining based on its uh, amount of oil that's available. And, and he predicted that there'd be a, a major reduction in the 2020s, uh, if not before. Um, and it, it certainly has been a, a period of recognising that resources are constrained in the oil area. So is this the final oil crisis before EVs take over? That's what is driving me. Um, Saudi Arabia produces 17% of the world's oil, UAE 16%, Russia 11%. They're the three top producers. Um, and 70% of Russia's oil is now not able to be exported. That's an amazing change in a month. But the interesting thing is, it's a month, you know, since the invasion started and it was only going to last 24 hours or so. Uh, but it, it, it is uh, a world that is trying to show that by constraining resource use, you can actually influence the outcomes of a war. 
um, and that's geopolitics. So um, Australia imports 90% of its oil and is one of the least adopters of electro vehicles, only 2% of market share. This compares with China that imports 73% of its oil. That graph there shows that that's its biggest constraint. We think that you know, coal's pretty important. That's way down the bottom there. Um, the gas is in the middle, but oil is their real dependence. So they've had a massive campaign to electrify their transport, not just with electric vehicles, but this massive uh, metro systems and high-speed rail. But 15% of market share is what they now have for their electric vehicles. Um, and it's one of the fastest growing adopters of it. Um, Norway is the, the gold standard. They export oil, but they still have developed a market share of electric vehicles way beyond every, any other country. Now, 86% of the market is electric vehicles. So who's building for the future? Um, what I have been doing has been trying to get behind this whole oil business to see why some cities use more oil than others and become so dependent. And I created this term automobile dependence, which is now a basic term used by town planners around the world. And this graph on the left there became quite famous because it showed that it was an exponential relationship between density and transport fuel use. And it was built into the city. Uh, so we, I've produced a lot of books over the time and got a few giveaways there if you want them, but people don't read books anymore. <laughs> um, although that last one there, you can get for free on, online now. But the campaigns that I got involved in were not academic. It's been a journey for me that was more about activism and politics. Um, so that's the, in 1979, a picture of me with some of my research students and family who set up the uh, Friends of the Railways when the last train to Frio was closed down. There was a certain person in the room who made a play about it at the time called The Last Train to Frio. And there was a bit of a film made, but it, it, uh, it was a pretty exciting time. I certainly learnt a lot about how you bring about change, much more than I would have learnt in any kind of academic situation. So I've been rather addicted to going and doing things ever since in, in governments and in, in activist activity. My big campaign at the moment is the trackless tram, but uh, Metronet is extraordinary in that we've gone from 7 million passengers a year to 70 million now, and there are seven new rail lines being built. So it's quite an extraordinary thing to be still alive and having seen a city transformed in its commitment to rail. Um, and it wasn't hard because the people wanted it. And in 1979, you might remember, that was the first oil crisis in Australia. Wasn't a good year to shut down a railway. So why do we need to shift from oil to electric? It's pretty obvious the air pollution issue is a very dominant one around the world. It kills 10,000 people a day. Still, that's the WHO figure. Wars are caused by, I got involved with a political scientist from Stanford, Robert North, who 
wrote about how it's caused most of the 20th century wars and uh, that climate change is accelerating. So the climate agenda clearly drives things now and decarbonisation is the agenda. Australia is famous for the uh, UN Secretary General this week saying that we're a, a laggard. The first country to be named really in this regard, uh, he, he, he was the only uh, nation he named in his speech opening our latest IPCC reporting period, which is finishing um, on April the 4th. But we, uh, we certainly have got uh, difficulties with the concept and have the politics of it has not been very, uh, well, it's certainly not been world leading. Um, but there's been a lot happening as well in, and I'll, I'll go through some of that because I think there are things to be proud of as well that he didn't know about, but I keep trying to tell people in IPCC about this. And it's very much on the political agenda here because of the floods and before that, the bushfires. But the IEA have now produced this net zero by 2050 saying that every step of development must phase out oil, gas, and coal. Now, the IEA have not been a leader in this over that period. They were set up, the, um, that whole process, to uh, be a kind of opposition to the OPEC, but um, they, they're doing a lot more than that now. So tsunamis from the sky, or, or atmospheric rivers, as they're now called, are are dropping coming from the tropics and dropping a massive amounts of water and they can totally destroy cities and regions vancouver had one recently and of course the eastern states of australia um, and one just recently dropped in antarctic and uh, they were having 25 28 degrees and it was melting everything so extraordinary things are happening now this is the uh, an example of what IPCC, all of those scientists there are volunteers. I'm in there, this was the group we were working on what you should do to meet the 1.5 C agenda that was set up through Paris. And, and uh, they're, they're from all over the world. There's even a guy there from Saudi Arabia, but um, the, the uh, American guy there was fantastic. Uh, he, he, he was there on that day when Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement, but he went out and set up an organization. We're still in, and within a week, he had 60% of the US economy saying, yes, we're still in. So it's a bit beyond that kind of national politics. Um, and the reason is because finance is now driving it. The post-COVID rebuilding is, well underway and there's 170 trillion dollars set aside for net zero projects only you will not get your money unless you can show a board uh, based strategy and and that you're consistent in all the pr work that you do that you are showing how to go net zero so all of the big mining companies in western australia they're all desperately going this way not because they're being forced by the WA government to do it or the federal government, because that's how you get the finance. So if you go to Climate Action 100 plus, you'll see all the finance companies and why they're committed to this process. Uh, 
And it's, it's for me, a bigger historical process. If you look at innovations, and, and I've written about this in this um, paper, COVID Cities and Climate, that there are waves of innovation and each of them come out of economic decline. And those big decline, like in the 30s when Schumpeter created the, the idea of creative destruction, that you create the new economy from that. So it's not just that the uh, um, climate 100 plus people are, are saying, well, this is the next big thing, we'll wave a green flag for a while. They're actually doing it because the technology has shifted to this. And the technology is about innovations in renewables, especially solar and wind, batteries, electric vehicles of all kinds, and smart city integration. They have to be fitting together. And good engineers like James know how to do that. But it's, 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 a, it's unusual in your training how you can actually integrate those things. But they are formally on the agenda in a way that is financeable. Um, the innovations that are not quite ready, hydrogen's one of them, uh, it is necessary for industrial processing, um, but it has some real problems. And I'll go into that. Um, circular economy is still struggling. Um, biofuels or synthetic fuels for shipping and aviation are struggling. So some things need to be scaled up, but there's some things that are ready to be financed now. And solar is one of them. This, this graph here is extraordinary. See this $359 to $41 in a 10 year period. Um, solar and wind are now the cheapest sources of power the world has ever seen. In historical times, nothing has been cheaper. It is so much cheaper than anything else. And the most expensive is peaking gas and the second most expensive is nuclear and getting worse. So that is why if you look at the left there, see the, uh, the, the, the rapid growth in sale of PVs and wind, they are dominating, the rest are really fading away. Now, Western Australia is not a laggard in this. Rooftop solar and distributed energy have become a model that the world needs to know about. And I tell people about this and they find it very difficult to understand. Surely it wouldn't be happening in Western Australia, but it is. 37% of households now have rooftop solar. That happened because we were wealthy in the mining boom. We started buying it, it worked. We set up businesses that made it very cheap. So there's now 1700 megawatts of power, which is by far the largest power station in Western Australia. And it's on our rooftops and it's growing at one megawatt a day. Now the whole of our grid is about 4,500 megawatts. So we're already a long way towards that and no utility has to buy anything because it's being bought by us, businesses and, and uh, individuals. So the minister said over, in both ministers actually, in both forms of government, 70% um, by 2025 should be where we see we're going. It's inevitable, can't stop it. Well, that really gets rid of any further coal or gas, actually, as long as we work out how to store it and make it 
functional. And that's what we're doing. But the interesting thing is that we're way ahead of the US. We're about half the price of what it costs to buy solar and to put it, it takes weeks to get it. We can do it overnight. The finance system has been set up, design and permitting, and the panels are cheaper. All of that has happened because we got into it early. So Western Power is now completely redoing our network based on that distributed energy roadmap, which is now policy. Um, so that's what's going to happen to our grid. The light gray area is not going to be on the grid. It is coming off and slowly those green dots are growing. They're the standalone power stations. There's one of them at the bottom there. That's the what farmers have been getting and finding that it's a much better source of power. They have a little backup diesel system, but that's increasingly going to be provided by hydrogen. I'll show you a picture of that. Um, and in the suburbs, you'll find community batteries appearing. There's about 11 trials and now a big one called Symphony that's showing how to do microgrids with, uh, uh, with fully solar-based and battery-based power that is better and cheaper than what we have now. That's all happening very quickly. There probably will be some wind to back up this. We've now only just this past week got federal government approval to put in offshore wind farms and uh, that they are lined up. There are two big ones for 3000 megawatts each. Um, so the big thing now is electric vehicles fitting into that. So we're doing well on power, not doing well on electric vehicles, but it's happening worldwide. So you can see there that the rapid growth around the world and uh, it's easy to see why it's actually cheaper um, to run significantly. And overall, you save money if you buy an electric vehicle, 15% uh, cheaper. But if you have PVs on the roof and you fill up at home, it's even cheaper and you can pay off very quickly. So around the world, the electric vehicles are just taking off. Uh, Tesla is now by far the biggest vehicle uh, manufacturer and 85 billion wealth, um, eight times the value of GM, 13 times the value of Ford. And that's all happened in just a few decades, well, a decade really. Um, and all these big companies are now saying they're not gonna make any more petrol or diesel cars by 2025 to 30. So that is a very rapid transition. And so around the world, Europe is by far the biggest um, consumer of electric vehicles. Uh, in the developed world, China outstripping everyone. North America are a little bit behind that and the rest you can raffle and we're in there. We are very tiny, but it is growing. Uh, it is growing very rapidly. Now, we are the only state left not subsidizing electric vehicles. You can get a two or $3,000 extra bit if you, uh, in any of the other states, uh, in the ACT, it's even more. Um, but we are putting in the fast charging sites all, all over the state. So that's one thing. But there was a hint from the minister this, this week uh, on Tuesday at the CEDAR event where he was suggesting that they probably are going to go down that track. 
So what is the geopolitics of all that? Firstly, we have to go electric and mobility much quicker in the city and the regions. The world needs our lithium battery minerals to make green power and green transport. And they want to keep making it into products there, not here. Um, just a quick aside, um, Russia has closed down their two vehicle manufacturing places and their tank manufacturing place uh, because they've run out of parts. And I just wondered, maybe they run, run out of lithium ion batteries and, and, and the, the minerals to make that. That's the geo, we wouldn't give it to them now. Um, so the world needs green hydrogen and net zero based primary production in mining and agriculture. And they wanna keep making it into products there, not here. And the new economy products, though all of those are thermodynamically better made locally, especially where there's sunshine, space and clever engineers. Where would that be, I wonder? So Western Australia has most of the lithium and battery minerals. You can see that graph there on the left, we're way up on, uh, that's Australia. But if you look at uh, in, in the, the state government one, lithium is now uh, coming, 49% of world production is coming from WA. Now I keep getting people coming up to me, the IPC saying, oh gosh, we, we're gonna have trouble with all these batteries because lithium comes from these three uh, places, you know, uh, Chile and Argentina and Bolivia, and they're gonna form an OPEC and stop it all. And I said, no, it's coming from a, a huge mine just two hours south of Perth. That's the biggest lithium mine in the world. So they haven't quite caught up with it. Chile's going down in production. It's now 22%, China 17%, Argentina 8%. Um, and this is the biggest mine in the world for lithium, green bushes. It's actually a boutique mine, if you look at it. Have you ever seen those mines up in the Pilbara? Oh my God, they're huge. There's nothing quite like that. And, and the reality is we produce 60% of the world's iron ore, 800 million tonnes from the Pilbara. We produce 4 million tonnes of lithium. So it's actually a boutique product. And we have three other mines in Pilbara and Goldfields. There are eight new potential mines ready to go because the world lithium demand's going up very rapidly. Um, but it is actually well produced. The price, if you'd bought lithium shares, you'd be doing well. Uh, and it's certainly been continuing to go up. So the world needs security of supply for new energy and battery metals, for sure. And we are sitting pretty in Western Australia. So can't, why can't we do something with them here? Do we have to just dig them up and ship them out? This is uh, what drove us writing this, uh, this document called Lithium Valley which has been used to set up a whole lot of things in recent times. And it, uh, it is about how we can overcome the, the value leakage. There's enormous amount of value in processing lithium. So this is what it's actually now happening. We produce 
lithium for batteries uh, from spodumene. It's, that's what it looks like. It's a beautiful mineral. Uh, it's totally non-toxic. You can play with that and you can then process it into lithium hydroxide. And it's a, it's a, 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 a you know, quite easy to touch material. But that has to be produced at 99.9% purity. So what has happened is three businesses have now located in Western Australia to do that. Now we haven't done much value adding, but we are now in lithium. And the, the Chinese, Tianqi, SQM, the Chileans, Covalent is European, I think, or maybe they're a bit of a mixture, and Albemarle are American. They have decided to put it here, not to process outside. And that needs the science and engineering. It needs high quality production. And it is not depending on cheap labor, which is why we never could do it before. The geopolitics has shifted to doing things high quality in lithium ion, in the lithium ion battery world. It's a new world and it is a different one for the location of industry. So Quinana is becoming Lithium Valley. There's a bit up in the Pilbara and the Goldfields and down the Southwest, Kemerton, but this is certainly happening. High, high quality battery metal processing from ethically accredited mining. And there are ways of doing that now with the indigenous components as well as transparent and doping that enables you to follow it right through the value chain. Battery precursors are now being planned so they can be um, put directly into batteries and battery manufacture after that. So there's a big business being established through the various companies to try and show how to do that. There's a recycling system being set up, but it needs a container port. All of these things go out in containers and they should be a container port at Quinana. So what did ScoMo do? He gave us the start of our container port at Quinana, $4.3 billion in the last week. And that is for defense, but it's also going to create all the necessary um, facilities down there that will be the basis of Westport, which is the opportunity we have to create a 21st century port with large facilities where you make the, the products and then put them in a container and send them to the rest of the world. So that's underway and it's now, it seems bipartisan after having to fight that and produce a UWA book called Never Again, based on row eight. So it's, it was a good week for me. Um, and we have a, a, a system of extending battery life that's now being produced uh, by through the CRC future battery industries. The recycled batteries business is happening around the world, but this is not, not what's down at Quinana, but it's being planned. So what about the regions? And I'll finally get on to hydrogen. Farmers need electric tractors and harvesters to go with solar homes. They were getting the solar homes, they're working. Miners need electric trains, trucks and diggers to go with solar towns. And that's happening. So the farmers, they've got a problem with urea at the moment. It's increased in cost threefold. You can create green urea here 
and there are businesses about to start on that, perhaps one at Collie. And diesel is the main energy source for farmers. They have to go solar or electric as well. Diesel needs to be phased out and can be. So this is a business that's been set up in, in WA, Blue Diamond Machinery. They are now using hydrogen to replace the diesel backup. So that all of those systems that have solar or wind and batteries can now have a hydrogen system that's created for them from the green sources. Uh, whenever there's extra renewables, it makes the hydrogen, creates it and uses it as the backup. So we can be 100% now and it's all being done here. Um, now some very big projects that you will have seen in the press that are um, FMG seems to be associated with most of them. Um, and this is the first of the uh, big solar farms to have actually been built. This is a, a mining system that's been set up 60 megawatt, 100% daytime operation, but they've got gas. Now that's a classic example where they'll phase into hydrogen there as backup. Uh, the miners uh, started out looking at hydrogen fuel cell trains because it was said, and a lot of people in IPCC said this too, oh, you can't, can't work on big heavy things. You've got electric can't, you've got to have hydrogen fuel cells because they last longer. And, um, but they're, they're not. Um, they're now getting lots of big freight trains. And this is the one that Fortescue is getting. Um, you can see that the second uh, part of that train is a big battery and that big battery is recharged as it goes down the hill because it's um it runs on uh, what do you call the battery uh, our trains do it too but it, it it happens in hybrid cars and so on, uh where it feeds back yeah i know anyway it's regenerative braking and uh, regenerative braking is a very big source of power if you're coming down from the hilltop down into the coast. And so that's why they call it the infinity train. <laughs> um, but you can see the length of that, how much iron ore goes out in one train. There's five or six of these a day, massive amounts. There's nothing like that for lithium and the other battery minerals, but that's happening. And this is the one that was announced last week with uh, Cannon Brooks uh, putting his money in, instead of in the Eastern States into this project, which is making the world's biggest solar and battery project. This is Sun Cable, 20,000 megawatts. Um, that's five times the size of our grid. And they want to put it in, a, in an underwater cable to Singapore into the Asian region. Um, and that would be for 2000 megawatts. The other 18,000 is going to make hydrogen. And that's what uh, we need to look at just, and I'll finish on just talking about this. First of all, let me show you that hydrogen is not easy to use because compared to electric vehicles, you see the electric vehicle there has, um, it just captures the solar energy straight into the battery and away you go. If you want to do that in a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, you've got to turn it, you've got to electrify water first, store the hydrogen, 
distribute the hydrogen, store it again, put it into another storage facility on board. Every step of that wastes energy. That's the thermodynamics. So the, th the thermodynamics of each of these steps is energy loss. And it's significant. So a hydrogen fuel cell is only ever going to be about 33% efficient compared to 77% with an electric vehicle. So we have groups like Toyota and so on working with us in IPCC, and they've been trying to get a cheaper hydrogen fuel cell vehicle for a long time because the Japanese government wanted them to be able to go to tsunami-based areas that have lost their power. It hasn't worked. So all the vehicles, the big vehicles, the trucks, the buses and so on, that we're going to have hydrogen fuel cells are now going electric. They're very much better to do that. So just keep that in mind. Hydrogen is no good for land transport. It's lost that battle. But it has to be a, a very important product for a whole lot of things, particularly up here. They are unavoidable to use in industry. And there are some things like shipping and aviation. There's no, you can't make them electric. So long haul aviation and, and so many things like green steel and so on, they will have to have hydrogen. But the uncompetitive is all of those transport, land transport. So aviation and shipping, it looks to us that ammonia is likely to be what's used in ships and synthetic jet fuel in planes, but they need a lot of processing, storage, distribution, and so on. And that's the problem. Now, this report came out just from the Crawford School. And I think it's a load of rubbish because it's basically saying we can export all of our hydrogen into the world and solve all our problems. Uh, and it's only going to take 2% of our land area, massive amounts of PVs everywhere, and we'll make hydrogen and export it. Well, this is what you have to do. If this is one, the first liquid hydrogen ship, minus 253 degrees centigrade. I mean, it's just impossible to imagine that becoming anything like economic. And it went it, and it escapes so easily. And you cannot put it into the pipelines, you know, the gas pipelines we've got. It's got to be very specialized and incredibly difficult to transport and store. You can turn it into ammonia. This ship is, is, is uh, the first one doing that. Um, and it's better, minus 30, but there's still a lot of waste involved. It's a very difficult thing to process. Um, so it's a necessary option for industrial processing and all, Japan and China and Germany and so on, they're all desperate for it. They want to switch Korea. They all want Australian hydrogen, but it's going to be very expensive. It should be used right next to where you make it, where the sunshine is, where the minerals are. That's the geopolitics that's going to favour us and it already is. So it changes the whole world of geopolitics. So we have a renewable hydrogen strategy. Alana McKeon's running this. Uh, we've got the sunshine, the space, the primary products, and we need hydrogen to help with that. 
So green steel is the big first agenda in that. Um, there's been estimates of 400,000 jobs in the Pilbara if you process that ore there instead of digging it up and shipping it out. And we certainly have plenty of it. So there's a green steel value chain assessment group with all of the mining companies involved in that, working out how we could do that in the Pilbara. That's a fantastic thing. We, we are taking that seriously, but it's going to be a while. It's not going to take, you know, so there will be some hydrogen exported for sure. And um, Fortescue's very big in all this. Uh, this is the latest thing they've got, which is a, a 5,400 megawatt solar and wind plant up on a pastoral station just south of Onslow. And that's actually gone into the planning system and the environmental system. It's the first of those hydrogen hubs because they want to make, that, that's already bigger than our grid. So they're going to make power for usage up there, but they're also going to make hydrogen. And that's going to be part of his Green Steel's proposal. But this is happening. We are one of the first places in the world to actually be going down this track of making green hydrogen. So can we become a world leader? I'm going to finish here. Australia's got the best sources of wind and solar renewable energy globally. Australian engineers are top tier. I would hate for us to squander the opportunity we've got. I don't think the opportunity is missed yet. I do think it could be missed. That's the CEO of Tritium, which was announced recently by Biden uh, to be listing on the NASDAQ. And it is building a Texas factory to make high, high, high speed charging facilities. And they, where do they learn that? They learned it how to do it because they were involved in the PV car race that went from Adelaide to Darwin. Three engineers uh, learned how to do it. Elon Musk was involved in that too. That's where he got involved in, in this whole electric vehicle thing. And they are now worth uh, a, a very large amount of money. And uh, they are, have a Brisbane factory that makes these. Most of the high-speed chargers in the world are now made by an Australian firm. And they're going to make the biggest factory in the world to do it. Now, uh, the, there are various things you can do. This, this, I saw this in the paper the other day. I have no idea who the West Australian Party is, but they said all the right things. And all you've got to do is put a 5% levy on all battery minerals and put it into lithium valley processing. I thought that's good. Um, but I wrote of something this week, which got in the WA Today, Sydney Morning Herald and so on. Um, we should take the fuel tax, 44 cents a litre, that's 20 billion a year, and phase it in for the next economy's infrastructure, which is all electric and uh, electric vehicles. And the diesel subsidy in the country, instead of being just making diesel cheaper, it should be now being phased into this whole green hydrogen thing. So we've got two big sources. Why don't we put them into that? Sunshine, not oil. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Peter.
It's a very brave man who puts a photo from 1979 of himself on the screen. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and along with your brave ideas. Um, for those online, I forgot to mention earlier, the Q&A function on the Zoom application is open. So please uh, uh, submit your questions through uh, typing in, uh, in the Q&A function. Um, in the meantime, um, can I open up the questions to the floor? If you raise your hand, we're going to be a little bit of gymnastics with the microphone here today. So you just bear with us for a while. So we got a question right at the back there. Hi, um, my name is Michaela and Peter, I wanted to um, thank you for your presentation today. I thought that was, that was great. Um, and I wanted to ask your opinion about the use of biomass um, to make green hydrogen because I know it's a controversial renewable resource um, and I wanted to know your thoughts. Yeah, well, it's a big issue for um us in the IPCC, um, I'm the chair of the transport committee and the co-chair is from Brazil and they have a lot of biofuel they use and have done for some time. It's very cheap um, and it doesn't seem to interfere with their ability to produce food. But around the world, whenever biofuels have been tried, it's generally been taken from some kind of sugar or grain instead of it going into food. And that makes it very contentious. So the model for how biofuels can work is in Brazil and all part of them, they've done well out of it. Um, so a lot of Amazon perhaps has gone because of it, but um, it is nevertheless a, uh, not something that can be transferred very easily around the world. It, it is still very expensive to make uh, out of sugars, um, but there are a lot of people working on how it can be made out of woody waste material, and that is still not yet commercially available. If that breakthrough came, there would be some a lot more potential for it. So at this stage, it's going to be very hard to actually compete now with the electric vehicle and all kinds of electric vehicles. Um, it's because the link to solar and electric vehicles is so easy to do and it's just taking off everywhere. So why not just go that way if you want to get into, and we have to accelerate this decarbonisation. If you're going to wait for more and more biofuels to be used. It, it, it's interesting because Saudi Arabia, Russia, um, Brazil, they tend to say, let's just wait for biofuels. Because um, they know it's actually not gonna happen. <laughs> it's not happening and it's unlikely to happen uh, in, in the near future. So whereas, Electric vehicles are happening. They are, you can go electric everything in Bunnings, of course, but also electric vehicles are in the showrooms and increasingly cheap enough to compete. So that's what we've got to do. And uh, we've got to help that change and make it dramatically different and effective. Thank you. Any other questions? 
Luke. Um, yeah, thanks very much. Luke Blackburn, um, I should declare an interest. I worked on the Yara Pilbara Green Ammonia Hydrogen Project, and I'm doing some work for Intercontinental Energy at the moment. So I was just interested in the, the, the capitals coming to these sorts of projects, as you made clear, but um, from a sustainability perspective, uh, there's a number of criteria and you did mention the indigenous elements. And so I guess without being specific, some of the major proponents don't have the greatest track record on indigenous relations and just any observations you've got about free prior informed consent and that sort of equity aspect to these developments. Yeah, well, um, the, the, that issue raises itself all the time when we talk about the lithium battery minerals. And uh, I do need to be able to explain how we do ethical mining. Um, and in, in a world situation where you've got cobalt being mined by slaves, um, it, it's certainly not like that. But a lot of people think it is, that all the lithium in the world is either being taken from people who don't get paid properly in Chile and, and they're ruining the ecology there or in, in, in mines in, in the DCR. Um, so I have to perhaps overstate how well our mining system works in this. But I think we do pretty well. And the, the native title is so now fixed in our system that you can't get away with blue murder. I mean, you can try and you might blow up a cave, but by geez, it'll end your business and nearly did. I mean, it certainly ended the careers of those involved. But my reading of that one was that it essentially happened because the CEO was one of these CEOs who just went for the bottom line and cleared out the business of all of that soft stuff, talking to indigenous people and so on. And, and there are a lot of, I mean, I knew people who were removed from that and were not given proper access to decision-making. Um, that won't happen any longer. It's clearly now an agenda where we must work with indigenous and legally they should anyway. Um, and, and certainly the, all, all of these big projects, they're not gonna happen unless they're totally with indigenous and they will not, um, they will have to pass through all the environmental assessments as well. And they're big and they're, they're covering a lot of ground. So they're gonna have to work out how to make them fit in with the local ecology as well as the local indigenous processes. So all power to you. And uh, it's, it's a great business to be in at the moment. And I think there's gonna be thousands of jobs for indigenous people in this area. And we have gotta make sure that's the breakthrough. Because the interesting thing is back when right-wing governments in Western Australia set up uh, native title and so on, they said, oh, we'll, we'll just give them all the crown land out there because it's useless. <laughs> it's where all the space, sunshine and minerals is. <laughs> Perfect for the next economy. Great. Just gonna pull the mic. I'm going to ask a question from an online source. Uh, David Hall, um, message. Thank you, Peter. Great presentation. Two questions. One, could lithium potentially be replaced by a better mineral that negates our current competitive advantage? 
And two, will there be a solution for large scale solar panel recycling? Solar panels seem to produce lots of waste and toxicity at the end of its lifespan, which is concerning. Thank you. Yeah, the toxicity of batteries and solar are on the agenda. There's no doubt about that. And uh, it needs to be dealt with. But just compare that to 10,000 people a day dying of air pollution. And compare it to the wars that are created through oil. Um, you know, we have to make sure that we do this properly. The, that the lithium battery minerals and the solar minerals are made available for this transition. I think it's, it's an ethical responsibility for us to do that as well as having the economic opportunity. But we must be able to get into the recycling properly as well. And there are a lot of people working on that. The uh, CRC, Future Battery Industries, is doing work on that. Uh, and, and they do know how to do the chemistry of it. It's not hard to recycle those minerals, but you've got to have a more transparent system so you know what's in the batteries. And each manufacturer, there's about 30 different types of lithium ion battery. And they're, it's not clear on the battery. Um, and it, it needs to be traced and there are ways now of doing that. You put a tiny little bit of a mineral in there that can be traced, and that is then, you can follow it around the world. And there are blockchain systems that are now doing that as they do with wine when they sell it to make sure it doesn't get pirated. Um, and that is, those systems can enable us to have um, fully engaged processes that enable us to bring together all those minerals into a recycling process. It's not there yet anywhere. We need to work on that and we need to create that as part of this solution of the critical minerals that are, are needed for this next economy. But it shouldn't stop us. And I gotta tell you, the geopolitics of this is dirty there was an oil company found to be getting researchers to show why oil would be better than all of these problems with the critical minerals and, and they're toxic and they're gonna be constantly enabling us to have um, shorter lifespans because it's so expensive. And this sort of stuff is constantly involved in the world of the geopolitics world and uh, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of it but um, and Naomi Oreski shows how it is put together by you know the carbon club and all that but it, it is necessary to overcome that by showing that it actually works and can do things ethically and sustainably. Great um, another question uh, from an online Participant, uh, this is anonymous. Um, how might the planned transformation of the WA electricity grid, the Swiss, impact the potential for large-scale WA offshore wind energy projects, Peter? Um, well, I think the uh, the key is the duck curve, which is 
basically how we produce solar during the day. And even with a battery, it's usually full by about 11 o'clock in the morning. And then it, it, uh, you, you, get, you come home at night and the solar's finished, but you need your power. And the battery might last, but doesn't always. But wind is blowing in this part of the world a lot of the time. Now, there will be times where it slows down as well, and you need to plan for that in the system and have backup. But most of the time, solar can fill that gap, uh, the, the, the duck curve, if you like. The wind is generally blowing uh, in, the, in the nighttime and is therefore able to fit in. The, the unknown in all of this are electric vehicles because they, are, they have big batteries. 100,000 electric vehicles is equivalent to 500 megawatts, which is a coal-fired power station. And that amount is rapidly going to be available. So we'll have two or three equivalent-sized coal-fired power stations from our electric vehicles in the city, and that those vehicles have big batteries. Just imagine the buses when they go electric and they're in a depot and they're there during the day, they can, their batteries can be made available and at nighttime as well. So that business of sharing batteries as well as sharing solar and wind together, that's what the microgrids are now being developed to, to bring together. And the, each of the microgrids will have different um, amounts of batteries and amounts of vehicles in it and amounts of sunshine and amounts of wind. But together, they can be brought into forming our grid. And there is no city in the world that is further down the track of being able to do that and show the world than Perth. We are way ahead because our grid is not connected to another big grid as it is in the east. So they're starting to go down that track, but they don't have to go as quickly as we do because the solar is coming in so quickly, it's dominating. There are days when 80% of the power is coming from our rooftops and it's, we've now got legislation <laughs> or regulation to curtail the solar if it gets too much. It's a good problem to have, but it will be need to be managed. And that process is what we're going through. And we can show the world how to do that. We can show the world how to make ethical mind critical minerals for this whole process. We can process them here. We can do all of these things. And it's, it's just an extraordinary opportunity, I think, for engineers and scientists and and uh, all, all of the other clever people who are needed to make those systems work. Uh, and, and it is a, a new economy that's emerging very quickly. So we can show them how to do it. One other quick example. Power Ledger is a business that was set up in Perth three years ago by Gemma Green. She did a PhD with me on how to share solar. She's the one who brought blockchain in and created this business based on how successful it was. 
they now work in 25 countries. They have 85 staff. They've got a big place in St. In St. George's Terrace. And, and that process of how clever people are getting jobs in this area and showing the world how to do it, that's our future. And, and the geopolitics of that are such that we should really believe in ourselves to be leading in this area. We got a question from Samina, please. You've lost Thank you very much, Peter. Peter, just uh, here. Sorry. Hi. <laughs> a very basic question. It's not my area, but I'm really intrigued by what you have said. And it's a simple question, and I'd love an answer for that. I totally agree with you. Electric vehicles is the way to go. And we need to sort of move in that direction. But what happens to all these other cars that are still moving around in the world? What do we do with them? Mm. And can they be refitted with some new system so that one process of saving energy doesn't mean wasting a lot that's already been there? Yeah. Yeah, this is a very practical issue for me and my son who has a Land Rover Defender and uh, which is 30 years old and he's not going to give it up and he wants to transform it into an electric Land Rover Defender and in the Land Rover Defender Club there are experts who can show you how to do it. So we've got a backyard kind of business that's been running for some time about how to fix your car and make it electric. It's not that hard but I certainly can't do it. I bet he can. And there will be those kind of things happen. But most people are not going to be able to do that. And mostly our vehicles are going to phase out. And um, the, the last 10% will probably have to be thrown out. <laughs> um, as were the leaded vehicles, that leaded petrol vehicles that you know, had to be phased out. It was a toxic substance that was, and, and so there's only unleaded fuel now. Um, and some of those vehicles still exist, but mostly they don't. So that was a 20 year period to do that. Um, in fact, the very last country in the world um, has now banned leaded petrol. And that was a 40 year project to essentially phase out in the entire world. Um, and that's the kind of period that probably will take to go with electric vehicles, but uh, there will be certainly a lot more of them a lot quicker in the developed world. The developing world is moving also quite quicker um, with electric um, auto rickshaws. Uh, that, that, that's the next big thing to solve all that problem of the smoky fuels that they had um, and they're being subsidized in India and Pakistan, Bangladesh, and they are working really well. And there's the electric boater boaters in, in Africa that are becoming the freight bike, the freight system uh, for small scale. And, and they, they will take off, I think. There's a, there's a term now used called leapfrogging where it's like the smartphone. 
that just took off everywhere. So Maasai herdsmen have them, you know, that's the reality. It just went so much quicker than most people thought it would. Um, it's a disruptive technology. And I think that's what's happening with electric vehicles. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we have to manage that process and the developing world are, are struggling with it, but it is still the cheapest option for the future. Got another question here from Ash, but I'll read it out. I think I'll, and I'll interpret it a little bit. Um, the attraction for hydrogen into transport was that you didn't need to put it on a charge. You could. It, it is similar to diesel or or petrol, and you can fill it in in a station, and away you go. Um, and that was sold as as a good alternative um the downside of charging however um seems to be being overcome what any thoughts on that whether the attraction of hydrogen into into transport um still has that attraction or not yeah um the this the downside of that was you have to have a hydrogen storage facility to provide that hydrogen. And they were very difficult to do because there's no hydrogen pipeline you can just tap into. Whereas anybody can set up a, a recharging facility if you've got electricity and you know that's a global phenomenon. So the problem initially was that the batteries didn't last for more than 40 or 50 kilometers. They now go 400. You, there's one that goes 2,000 kilometres. Um, you know, these are the things that are happening very quickly. Um, and on big trucks, that was considered, oh, you know, they'll never be able to uh, get electric batteries. Um, you'll need hydrogen. And so you, you, you've got to get a big tank of hydrogen on the back of your truck, like a diesel um, tank. Um, but it's just so expensive and so difficult to even get it to the truck. You're not going to put in a hydrogen highway all the way up to Kununurra, out to Kalgoorlie and out to Esperance, which is what we're doing with high-speed electric charging. It's actually happening and the RAC are doing it themselves and getting businesses set up to do it. If you want to go south now, you'll, you'll, you can easily do it. There's plenty of recharge spots and they're all known by the EV owners. Um, so it's, it's now a lot easier, but it's also thermodynamically sensible. That's the difference. And sorry, I didn't read out the second part of the question is how fast is it when you say fast charging, what are yeah. the speeds, charging speeds now? Yeah, two minutes will fill an electric vehicle with a tritium high-speed charger. Um, I, I've been following this with our trackless trams as well, because when we first looked at that, and it was only three years ago, um, it was a 40 kilometer distance before it needed recharging. Um, no, 20, then it went to 40 and it's now 70. Uh, the, 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 the batteries are just getting better and better. Um, but they can recharge them very quickly and easily in a 
a, a sort of nine minute charge at the end of a route uh, just to top it up and and then overnight with a slow charge which is cheaper and um, and that's what they're doing so the electric there are thousands and thousands of electric buses in china and they are recharged at night with slow charge that's what the act are now doing and new south wales are doing they're switching to electric buses um we're still talking about diesel which is pretty silly thank you uh we've got two questions uh Flavia, James, I've got one more up here. So three, but before I go, I should make a, before you go, sorry, I should make an announcement. We've lost the video feed because our camera has run out of juice. It needs to be recharged. Um, but you're still getting audio. As I can see, online, online participants are still putting in questions. So apologies to the online audience. We've run out of, of juice, but we're still, we, we're, we're still hearing, hopefully you're still hearing us. Well, they don't need to see me. And, and we're, we're getting your questions. Flavia, please. Thank you, Brandon, for giving me the floor. And thank you for giving me the mic. I'm up and running since 6 a.m. today talking and I'm starting to lose my voice, but I still have a question. Thank you very much, Peter, for a brilliant presentation. This is not my area as well, but I have a geo strategic and geopolitical question based on your presentation. I, I, I personally think that clean energy and, you know, um, electric cars are, are, you know, a brilliant idea in the way forward, um, you know, for sustainable development. But when we think like now with um, the Russian-Ukrainian war, do you think that we have a perhaps a one in a million historical context where governments in the world might finally give additional incentives for this transition away from petrol towards clean energy and particularly um, electric powered cars. Thank you. Yeah, well, that's what I hope. Um, it's been a long, slow process as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I would really hope that, that something like that could happen. Energy security is back on the agenda and it's an opportunity to rapidly uh, facilitate driving off sunshine, not oil. And sunshine's a lot cheaper and it's local. And we, you know, I mean, around the world, people must be thinking, geez, I wish I had an electric vehicle. The price of petrol and diesel is crazy now. Well, that can drive this change, but uh, we, we, we need to facilitate the infrastructure and the subsidize the car purchases see at the moment we don't even get all the right vehicles there are 50 or so vehicles electric vehicles on the market and we only get about 15 of them because they don't see us as a sensible kind of market there's always other places where you can sell them better and yet we're a wealthy country we should be able to buy them and, and, and get going on it. So we do need some help to get that market really going to the point where there's a lot more on the market and then the secondhand market will look after itself and people will start buying that of, with any income. So we have James and then back to you after that. Can you wait for the mic please? Sorry. Oh, thanks Peter for that interesting and, and very detailed presentation. Uh, Recently, there's been a, a large controversy blow, blow, blowing up about the 
uh, veracity or the, the reliability of the market in carbon credits in Australia. And presumably these problems extend overseas too. And you mentioned that there are a lot of industries that are going to rely on being able to sequester carbon by various schemes to get us through the transition. And so what's your view on this as, as perhaps a, you know, an informed observer, <laughs> uh, perhaps more informed than the rest of us? Are these markets really working or are they being ripped off? Are we being ripped off? Um, yeah, look, it was on PM tonight as I was coming in. <laughs> um, I didn't mention the offsets. Uh, I could have, but um, offsets are where you don't quite make your net zero. So you uh, or fully zero based on reducing and adding renewables and you offset then by by buying carbon credits. Um, and the, the best way to do it is through um, planting things because it's part of a process of enabling the ecology to be re regenerated as well. Um, that's the theory. And that's been happening. And in Western Australia, we have one of the world's greatest projects in that it's called Gondwana Link and it stretches from the Kerry forest right through to the Kalgoorlie woodlands it's a thousand kilometer long project to actually join up all the reserves by purchasing farms and doing the the uh, regeneration the offsets into a, a long um, corridor that becomes a biodiversity corridor into the future. Now that's an, a dream that was put together by a guy called Keith Bradby, who was working Department of Agriculture and he was basically a bit of a hippie. And, and, and we all thought, you, you got no show of doing this, mate. <laughs> uh, he, he said, well, take a couple of generations, okay, but uh, we've got to get started. Well, they're going so quickly now because of these offsets. And you can go down and see, or you have a look at their website. It's fantastic, very inspirational. They do it all with indigenous people and biodiversity-based volunteer groups. All of their credits are done that way. Now, when you go down, and Curtin University owns a farm called Noan Up, which is called the Bush University now, and 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 uh, Eugene Eads is is a professor. And he runs that place and you can go down there and, and just have the most amazing time seeing how a regenerated uh, area is performing. It's very healing. You know, it's, it's, it's a terrific place. And there are a lot of students go down there and see it, but a lot of people are donating their, um, you know, their, their farms to work in this project, or at least parts of the farm to join them all up. So I think it's a, it's a great project. And it, Keith Bradby, I spoke to recently because I wanted to buy some offsets. I've done some work on my house and I needed to offset the materials I'd bought. And um, he said, well, just wait a bit because we're going to upgrade to a new biodiversity approach that will guarantee for people that it is going to be of long-term value so they're aware in the carbon offsets business that there are probably a lot of people who've been getting away with blue murder but 
and that was exposed in the by a person who was giving out the carbon credits for the federal government, which was set up by Tony Abbott, you know, that whole process. Instead of the carbon tax, you were going to do these carbon credits and you, you could buy them. Um, and it does seem to be pretty shonky, but who knows? And I, but I know the one that's here and it works well. <laughs> I like that idea. Hi, my name is Mia. Thanks, Peter. Um, so you say that we have all the resources we need, like uh, solar and space, and but our politics hasn't really been world leading, uh, particularly when other countries have really outperformed us. So just wondering what you thought has been stopping Australia's transformation? Uh, <laughs> I have tended to work with Labor governments, but I have also worked with Liberal governments, um, particularly Malcolm Turnbull, who really believed in the whole climate change business. He also believed in public transport and he, he uh, um, was you know set up all these city deals and and worked well with infrastructure Australia and all those things were happening. Um, but we do have a side of our politics that is um, extremely right wing and not not going to go with these sort of things. They just will try to stop change of any kind. And that kind of politics has to be beaten by talking about it endlessly and by demonstrating that the changes are not that difficult because most Australians don't want to change. It's a bloody good place to live and work. So why would we change, you know? Um, but the changes that we need are going to need to be transformative in the economy, but you'll still have a house and a job and a car and, you know, a, a good society to live in and a safe one. Uh, that's the reassurance that's constantly needed. And Labor is constantly doing the dance of how far you can go on these sort of things. You know, you've got a lot of people committed to the ideas, but not necessarily able to go fully with it. Now, that distributed energy roadmap is a very good example. That was done by Jessica Shaw. She's a young woman who got elected into Swan Hills in a time when it wasn't expected to be a Labor seat, but they had the big swing. She got in there. She's got a master's from Cambridge in public policy, totally into climate change. She worked out what she could do was create something as a bipartisan process in parliament, not through cabinet, not through the, the political system as such and bipartisan uh, processes are ones that stick so the distributed energy roadmap was a three-year process within the state government parliament and it worked it got business involved it got community involved it got universities involved and she produced this report and it's taken off and it has total 100% support across the parliament. Now that gets very little publicity, but that's the kind of politics I love. 
because there is no reason to just say one side does it better than the other. And there's plenty of opportunity. And I think we're going to have a lot of opportunity coming up because that extreme right that was started by Tony Abbott um, is dying and uh, it's not before time. Thank you. Thank you. We're almost out of time. Um, I have one, I think it's a comment by Dean Economo from Curtin in response to your question, Ash, which is, he makes the statement 800 kilowatt charging from Tritum, which you mentioned, the NYSE's success story used by Porsche and Hyundai gives 200 kilometer range of charge in five minutes. So there's the expert. That's the that's a data point. He just happens to work for me. <laughs> I, I I thought of I thought that. Um, I guess to elaborate a little bit, if I could ask one final question, um, I don't see any hands up. If um, the question of policies, whether it be EV or just the general climate, has unfortunately been a very you know has been a an extremely effective wedge issue. It's been weaponized in several political cycles. Um, I take your point that it's this coming election, we might see a bit of a lessening of it. Um, but um, having a long-term view, do you see it as, you know, having been involved in the ecology movement for a very long time and as an advocate, um, are you hopeful are you really hopeful that the weaponizing of climate change and climate supportive policies is behind us? Um, yeah, look, I choose to hope rather than feeling it. Um, there's always potential for it to go down and the money is there to make it go down. There's usually processes in place that will unleash that fear that undermines good politics. Um, but I choose to hope because I have seen enough success. I mean, I was, I was totally uh, naive with politics when I started the Friends of the Railway, but we won and we implemented it. And each election cycle, we'd get another win and we'd keep going. So it's very hard to be not hopeful about politics when that happens. And it happens because you get the right combinations of partnerships with activist groups who are prepared to get into the dirty business of what you need to do next, not just waving flags. That's politics. And um, I think we've got a very good selection of issues in Western Australia that are both of the ecological kind, which wins forests, winds, um, water si systems, winds, indigenous issues, winds, transport issues, and energy and climate issues to show that we can do that here. Um, but on the federal level, we're dealing with unknowns like Queensland that, you know, just seems to produce crazies out of nowhere. And and you never know what they're going to do. So it's it's always a battle. You'd never give up. But uh, for me, the weaponizing of climate change is is well over 
in Europe. It's pretty much over in California, and that's driving the American politics, but you know, the South is still totally weaponized it and they'll do everything they can to stop it. Why? I don't know. It's just crazy. It's anyway, um, and the and, and the developing world is is very mixed. Um, so let's hope uh, and let's really choose to hope by um, enabling these processes that that will make sure that we are just way ahead economically and socially as well as doing the right thing with the environment and energy and climate thank you very much um that brings us to the end of the q a session can i please invite uh, our vice president gronya to come up to give the, the vote of thanks thank you so much um professor newman for that fascinating presentation so I think it was really interesting to see how those international developments are playing out in the WA resources sector. Um, now, we really rely on high caliber experts in their field to take time away from their important work, like yourself tonight, um, to keep our events program going. So we have a small token of our appreciation. Okay. <laughs> We'd like to thank you so much. Thank you.